book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and, convict, and to convict the, all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions, 
It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. This is the way of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many years ago when I was a student um, at Oxford, I, um, I tried to memorise the whole book of Jude. Um, I, I did actually manage it. At the same time, I was um, courting a rather beautiful young lady. Um, and when we'd meet up, she would test me to see if I could do it. So, you know, when we met up, uh, I would recite the book of Jude to her. I recommend it as a technique. We're now married. Um, do you remember that? That's cool. I'll have to try that again. Um, okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, tonight, uh, this afternoon rather, we're looking at contending for the faith. And if we're looking at contending for the faith in the context of all the things that we've looked at today as well, Jude seemed the natural place for us to go. You'll have realised that as we read it, why it is so apposite and relevant for us. Jesus did not call us to an easy life as Christians, did he? Those who come to know him by faith have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the Christian life is not all tranquility and calm. That is not what he meant when he promised us rest. He warned that the path to heaven would be paved with many dangers, toils and snares, as the hymn Amazing Grace puts it. And to get there, we would have to deny ourselves and take up our cross. In an important sense, Jesus did not come to bring peace to the earth, as we often sing at Christmas, because true faith in him often divides families, communities, even nations. The Bible says that all who, live, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So a calling to follow Jesus is a hazardous and a risky one. In the Church of England, it comes with a charge when we're baptised to fight valiantly as a disciple of Christ against sin, the world and the devil and to continue as faithful soldiers and servants of Christ until the end of our lives or until he comes again. Now, a brief look at Christian history shows us that there has always been enmity against the church and discord within it. In the early days after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Christians struggled against many external foes which sought to stamp them out. 
that was to be expected, as Christianity presented a grave threat to the existing order of things. And Jesus had warned that it would be so. There were also internal threats from various heresies, which felt like a betrayal of the truth and hence excited great passions. Fighting the good fight of faith will always be necessary because new threats are always constantly arising. The Apostle Paul warns the Ephesian elders that from even amongst their own number, wolves would spring up to twist the truth, scatter the flock, and lead people astray. Diligence and vigilance will always be required, he said. Wolves are attracted to sheep. So wherever there are sheep, wolves will inevitably follow, however sound our church may appear to be in theory. But what does it mean for Christians to join in this perpetual battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, especially when it sometimes seems to involve striving against other professed believers, sometimes within the same church, sometimes in the same denomination. Now, that is not an uncontroversial question, of course. What to some looks like contending, to others may feel like mere contentiousness. And while many may be engaged in effective contending in all kinds of ways, they may be accused by others of quiet compromise and acquiescence because their fundamental understandings of what it means to contend are fundamentally different. If secession, leaving the church, is a far from perfect option, how do we stand firm and fight on in a way that pleases Christ? Now, evangelicals have always known instinctively that being in the Church of England will require resilience and backbone. It has never been easy for us, ever. To be a member of church society, as you know, one has to sign a declaration which says, I will uphold the doctrine set out in the 39 articles and expressed in the Book of Common Prayer and will contend for it. You signed that. Thank you. Yes, you signed that to be a member of church society. Truth will always need upholding and fighting for. This has always been a sometimes exhausting and often nauseating necessity. But what does the Bible say about this contending? What is it? What is it not? How are we meant to engage in it? Well, in our latest publication, Fight Valiantly, Contending for the Faith in the Bible and in the Church of England, I survey the key passages in the Bible on that subject. And I think we can sum it all up, sum up the biblical doctrine of contending by saying that contending is the vital spiritual discipline of applying and promoting the gospel lovingly in a context of opposition. The vital spiritual discipline of applying and promoting the gospel lovingly in a context of opposition. Contending is no mere worldly exercise. It's an application of the gospel itself, both personally and corporately. 
It must involve boundaries and saying no to things as true love always does. But this ought to be done in a courteous and godly way, consistent with what the gospel tells us about ourselves. All of these pillars are vital for biblical contending, and to forget any one of those four aspects of the task would hamstring our efforts. At the end of the day, thinking about sexuality and such things as we have today, um, and radical ways of thinking about the world and the church, I want us to reflect on this epistle of Jude and what it tells us on this subject. Jude tells us to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. He will help us work out what it means so that we can join in and fight valiantly behind the one whose battle cry is love. Jude tells us three things. He tells us the call to contend, the needs to contend, and the way to contend. So first, let's listen to his call to contend. Jude 3 and 4 says, Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So rather than writing a more positive letter about our salvation, Jude decided to write an appeal instead, a vital appeal for people to contend for the faith. Jude adds that the faith was once and for all delivered to the saints. So it isn't a faith that can change or which can be added to. It was definitively delivered over, handed over, intact. So there is such a thing as orthodoxy, a definitive body of doctrine that has been passed down to us. The false teaching, which he outlines in the rest of the letter a little more, includes the idea of changing our gospel, our message. He says certain people want to transform the grace of God the gospel, so that it turns into a license for immorality, for doing what you like. They want to undermine, he says, the lordship of Jesus as our master. That is, one with rights over how we behave. So contending here, it's in the context of false teaching. It is contending for something, notice, for something, positively, constructively contending for the faith. It means not changing our doctrine and not changing our moral and ethical applications of it, which certain people would like us to. It means contending for the doctrine that we don't get to decide how to live as Christians because Jesus is our Lord and Master. So that's Jude's call to contend for the unchanging faith. Secondly, Jude tells us also why there is a need to contend. 
Listen again to what he says. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints for, because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So the reason there is a need for this struggle is that there are false teachers creeping in. Jude wants his readers to understand that the false teaching that they are meant to oppose is that which he describes in the rest of his letter. They're meant to recognize it. He tells us it replaces holiness of life with sensuality and immorality instead. Is that something startlingly new in the history of the church? Just now? I don't think it is. For starters, Jude tells us this was prophesied long, long ago. God always knew that these sorts of people would sneak into the church and try to whisper lies into the ears of his people. Just as Satan snuck into Eden and seduced Adam and Eve to doubt God's unerring word. Verse 17 of Jude says the apostles predicted that scoffers would come following their own ungodly passions. Predicted. Jude reminds us in verses four to, four, uh, five to seven, four, five, six and seven, of those who fell in the desert after the exodus from Egypt. Paul also talks about them, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 10. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, he says. 23,000 of them fell because of God's judgment in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test of some of, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Those things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Jude also points to Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Uh, last phrase there, unnatural desire, it could refer to homosexuality, the sin to which Sodom gives its name even today. Or, in a parallel to Genesis 6, where the angels lust after beautiful human women, it could be a reference to the Sodomites' desire to have sex with the angels, the ones who would come to rescue Lot. Not that the people of Sodom actually knew that they were angels. They called them men when they shouted for them, to be thrown out and raped. But whatever that word means for unnatural desire, the general word for sexual immorality there, just before it, is the word that includes all kinds of heterosexual and homosexual sins. It means any, any sex outside of heterosexual marriage, essentially. And Jude says, this is the kind of immorality which has often crept into the church. People who rely not on the word of God for their morality, 
but their own dreams, verse 8, will always defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. They rely on their base instincts. They go the way of Cain and Balaam and Korah in the Old Testament, which means they want sex, they want money, and they want power in this earthly city, rather than denying themselves, taking up their cross, and waiting and following Jesus to the heavenly city. As verse 16 says, these people are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. So surely Jude was prophesying about today. I mean, it's about today, isn't it? This is perfectly describing our day and age. Well, not just today. If you've been um, worshipping or ministering in the Church of England for a few years, I don't know, five years or so, maybe more, and you have just suddenly worked out that there are some people in the church who are not quite sound. I want to ask, don't you know your Bible? Don't you know your church history? I mean, where have you been for the last 20 years? For the last 20 centuries? In the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas talked about various heresies that he knew of. And he said... From the beginning, men have rationalized to find reasons why fornication and other sexual sins were not really sins, so that they might indulge their sinful desires without restraint. And he says, if a person were to maintain that God is not a trinity, not triune and one, or that fornication is not a sin, he would be a heretic. Both of those things are heresy, denying the trinity denying that sex outside of marriage is a sin. That's why Jude says we must contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, because there are always people who deny his lordship over our sexuality. In the 16th century, it was also just the same, even after the Reformation. One bishop of Hereford complained, particularly about his cathedral, that it was a place where idleness, contempt, and depraving of true religion and such-like occasions of the sin of sodomy do reign and rule. And then there's the pious evangelical headmaster of Eton, the Reverend Nicholas Udall, educated at Winchester. During the Reformation, he wrote works of spirituality, but in 1541 was found to be not only an enthusiastic beater of children, but also sexually involved with one of the boys. After a spell in prison, he should have got, it was a crap capital offence, he should have been executed for it, but he had friends in powerful places. After a spell in prison, he gets out and becomes a vicar in Essex, and then on the Isle of Wight, before going back to being a headmaster again, this time at Westminster School. Jude warned us that such people would creep into the church. In the 17th century, John Wesley's great-grandfather, a guy called John White, 
uh, was a good Puritan man. He was one of the trustees of the St. Anselin lectures. So obviously a jolly good fellow. He wrote a book, John White, about 100 of the most scandalous and malignant priests of his day. There it is, in 1643, the first century. It implies that there's going to be another hundred in the follow-up of scandalous, malignant priests. Last year, I did a two-hour seminar on this, uh, this work, looking at a great treasure trove of the ghastly and the wicked. Number one in John White's book was John Wilson, a vicar in Sussex, 1643. He was a practicing homosexual who seduced young men in his parish and was very open about it. He denied the doctrine of Jesus' virgin birth and the doctrine of original sin and had a Catholic view of the sacraments and images in churches. In other words, he was a liberal Anglo-Catholic. He hath openly affirmed, said John White at the bottom of the page there, don't like reading out the words, but it's 17th century English, okay? He hath openly affirmed that buggery is no sin. There are 99 other stories after this of vicars and senior clergy who followed their own ungodly passions in many and various ways. Gambling, drinking, sleeping around, lost in superstition, and often out clubbing or prowling the streets. Jesus told us that it would be so in the last time. In the 18th century, the Baptist preacher Benjamin Keach complained thus in 1701, was ever sodomy so common in a Christian nation or so notoriously and frequently committed as by two palpable evidences it appears to be in and about this city notwithstanding the clear light of the gospel which shines therein and the great pains taken to reform the abominable profaneness that abounds. Is it not a wonder the patience of God hath not consumed us in his wrath before this time? Was ever swearing, blasphemy, whoring, drunkenness, gluttony, self-love and covetousness at such a height as it is at this time here? He knows nothing about the 21st century. People followed their own sinful desires. Yes, even senior churchmen. Jude alerted us to the fact that it would always be so. So none of this is new. When Jude says, certain people will pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality, we must believe him. But we must not panic when he turns out to be telling the truth. As if something strange and unusual was happening to us in our generation that has never happened before. Now, the present is never exactly like the past, there may be new combinations of heresy in our day, and it may be more virulent in some places. But what Jude says here applies throughout the last days until Jesus comes again. In such a situation, believers have always needed to stand firm 
and do something in the face of the threat to a right understanding of God's grace to us as sinners. So Jude moves from the call to contend and the needs to contend, finally, to tell us the way to contend. The way to contend. What is it then? What is that something that we need to do? How are we meant to contend for the faith when there are false and deceitful workers operating in God's vineyard? It is some kind of struggle against difficulty, right? That's what the word contend means, a strenuous, agonizing battle. But what kind of thing? Violent resistance? Execution of heretics? Public denouncements? Dank memes on social media? Jude actually tells us. He applies his own teaching at the end of the letter so we can see what he thinks contending for the faith means. He says it in verses 17 to 23. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So there we go. He is defining for us, contending for the faith. In days when the church is divided. It is the false teachers, he says there in verse 19. It is they who cause the divisions they are worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But what should we be like? Verses 20 to 23 are the climax of the whole letter to which the rest of leads up. And they tell us what to do to obey Jude's exhortation to contend. Firstly, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Note that very interesting description. It is a holy faith a truth which leads to godliness. We are to build ourselves up in this. So the immediate focus, notice, is not on something that we do towards others, towards the heretics. Jude wants us to look to ourselves in this situation and edify one another with the truth, as we've been doing today. Secondly, pray in the Holy Spirit. We can pray in the Spirit, unlike those in the previous verse who are devoid of the Spirit. Their prayers are not in accordance with the will of God, the Holy Spirit. All things that we do should be suffused with this kind of prayer, rather than trusting in our own strategies and strengths. Third, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jesus defines love within boundaries. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, he said. So keep yourself 
in that love and live in a way that is pleasing to God. Again, that's something we must do with respect to ourselves in order to be contending rather than something that's focused directly on our opponents. We contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God. And that's something we can all do. Fourthly, wait for the mercy of the Lord to eternal life. The way out of all this struggle will come when Jesus returns or when he decides to act to mercifully deal with the opposition. So there are four components there to contending for the faith, all of them focused on our own personal and corporate spiritual responsibility, focused on ourselves, keeping watch over ourselves. Then and only then does Jude say how we should behave towards the false teachers, or more accurately, towards those who are affected by the false teachers. Jude's strategy for contending for the faith it's very different to worldly methods of fighting for what you want. His approach is characterized by mercy. It's a strategy of mercy. Did you notice that? Have mercy on those who doubt. Not harshness, but merciful. People faced with persuasive and passionate and powerful false teaching are often fooled and they often doubt. They don't know what to think when the world is screaming one message at them and we're telling them another. So the way we contend for the faith must be merciful to those people and attract them allure them to the true faith rather than putting them off it. Waverers can be reclaimed. Second, save others by snatching them out of the fire. That sounds like vigorous action which helps individuals avoid plunging wholeheartedly into the heresy. Do we even think about snatching people from the fire of hell as part of our contending we may think of it as evangelism but even those who seem to be heading to perdition can be saved by the way that we mercifully contend for the truth does that motive come out in the way that we speak about these things are we loving in our motives and in our attitudes Third, show mercy with fear to those tainted by the sins, promoted by the heretics. Again, we show love and kindness to people who are caught up in the false teaching and living. I think that mercy mixed with fear is about making sure that as we do work with such people, we don't get caught up in the sin ourselves, the sort of entangling sin that's being promoted by the false teachers, which is not easy to escape. We may think that we are clear and we are sound, but it's all too easy when you're focusing on somebody else's sins all the time not to notice our own fallenness in all the same areas or just to proudly assume that we are immune to temptation and become ensnared.
Interestingly, Jude goes straight to doxology after that, in which the attention is shifted away from others, back onto God and ourselves. So part of our contending must be looking to God to keep us from stumbling. The danger of not contending is great. But contending and then falling or stumbling into sin and error ourselves is also a very huge danger. So we need to be looking to God who can present us blameless, giving glory to him for this, not patting ourselves on the back for being so orthodox and sound and godly. The fall has left none of us entirely straight. We are all bent towards sin. That means orthodoxy in the faith is a gift from God and not a human work in which we can boast. God alone can keep us from stumbling. To God alone be the glory. So with that, we must turn to prayer. Let's pray. At the end of a long day of talking on this subject, let's bring our own private thoughts to the Lord in confession, thanksgiving, praise. We collect our prayers together and we pray. Almighty God, who gives victory to his faithful people, not by might nor by power, but by your Holy Spirit, grant in your mercy that we may not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and to fight valiantly against sin, the world and the devil, contending for the gospel as his faithful soldiers and servants until the end of our lives for we ask in the name of Jesus who conquered the powers of darkness and gave himself up to rescue us from this present evil age amen